welcome to the Tron Church Talking Points podcast. Today we're here with Edward Lobb and Paul Brennan, and I'm Katie Piggott. Um, today we're going to be talking about the Sunday sermons and uh, just trying to dig in a bit more um, into those. So, Paul, um, you were preaching in the morning from Revelation chapter 2 um, about the church in Smyrna. Um, it was a great comfort to hear um, from that chapter and just uh, you mentioned the fact that the Lord Jesus knows um, and he sees things in the reality that they are instead of how we see things, mm. um, which is wonderful. And uh, you encouraged us, um, because the Lord encourages us to do it, um, to have our eyes up, to, to be thinking about eternal realities and the fact that he is on his throne, um, he died and came to life. Yeah, so I was kind of I was stating the, the sort of positive uh, instruction there on Sunday about having your eyes lifted up to sort of the ultimate realities, the eternal horizons. Um, but if, if we're not doing that, How's that gonna How's that gonna play out? And it's it's not gonna go well if if our vision is limited and constrained to the immediate, to the issues I see in front of me now. Um, then we are going to be misreading the world. We'll be misreading ourselves. We'll be misreading our whole purpose. Um, so when we're confronted with issues or difficulties, you know our world collapses because our horizon is far too short term and we're forgetting about the eternal promises of God. Um, so there's going to be consequences you know, for ourselves, how we go about life, um, but also in terms of church involvement and what we're about as a church. So if, if my horizon is on the temporal and the here and now, then that is going to hugely impact the mission of the church so our task is to make and grow disciples of jesus christ and so if my horizon is not eternal then that is going to impact directly not just me but the church's mission um because the great reality is that all of us you know we are eternal creatures we will either spend eternity with christ in the new creation or in hell and if, if those realities are not clear in our minds, then why would we bother trying to reach out and bring people into church to see them come to Christ? Um, I, was, I came across an interesting survey the other day. So I think this is from last year. It's called the National Ministry Survey. So they did a big, big survey around the UK asking questions uh, of Christians and non-Christians just to kind of get a sense of what's the state of the church? And one of the sections is all about mission and evangelism. And I kind of asked the question of church, of, of Christians, uh, what's your sort of motivation for evangelism? What, what gives you confidence to go and tell other people? And the bottom answer, the answer with least responses was this, uh, I am fearful for these people entering eternity without knowing Jesus. So that was the bottom answer given. Eternity, heaven and hell, and that, that, to me, that's quite concerning because if eternity is not clearly in our minds, then we're not going to see the urgency of people's eternal destinies. Um, so that's going to play out, mm -hmm. uh, not just in mission, but in every aspect of church life 
and in every aspect of our own lives. So I, th I think not having our eyes set on Christ and eternity is going to be pretty devastating, I think. Yeah. And you mentioned things um, like, I guess, relationships, but even, you know, things like poverty, like our priorities, how what we think is important um, in this world like mass, like varies massively, doesn't it? Depending on whether you've got your eyes up or down, um, because obviously you, you're only going to be prepared to suffer if you know that you know he says the crown of is it crown of glory, um, a crown of life. That's what you've got to look forward to. That's what we're living for, isn't it? This is just so temporary, and we've got the eternity to look forward to. But Edward, I mean, what do you think? Have you seen this um, a number of times? Maybe while you've been in pastoral ministry, you still are, obviously, but as well as teaching at Cornhill, what are some of the implications you've seen of people when they've had their eyes down in terms of like just, um, yeah, real life sort of examples? Well, <clears throat> yes, thank you. Um, I suppose in, in every human heart, there is a tendency, in every Christian heart, there's a tendency always to get the eyes down, partly because we are surrounded by daily duties. You know, we, we should leave this room, we'll go home, we'll go do some shopping or some gardening or something like that. There are very much this worldly priorities, uh, which we feel are pressing in upon us all the time. So there's a constant down drag. And therefore, to have our eyes lifted up by the truth of the Bible to eternal issues is something that we need all the time. And it's glorious when it happens. Um, but I think it's because we, we live in a world that is always pressing us with this worldly needs that there's somehow um, an unwillingness in us sometimes to, to think about the great eternal things. Mm. I'll tell you about a, a training day I was at once. Um, I wasn't doing the training. I was I was part of the team that was being trained. It was a Sunday school leaders training day down in England. And a very experienced couple who had led Sunday school work for a long time in England were there training our Sunday school teachers. And they started off by saying, what is the purpose of a Sunday school? So we all hummed and hawed and burbled in our beards for a moment. Then the leaders said, the purpose of a Sunday school is to prepare the children for judgment. Now, my jaw drops at this idea to prepare the children for judgment. Little kids of six and eight and ten, that's the purpose of a Sunday school. In a way, that's the purpose of the whole church and the teaching ministry of the church. It is to pre pre prepare people for judgment because that's the great reality that's pressing in upon us. And yet we can forget about it. And we make, we make complicated preparations for all sorts of things that are just in this world. Think of the the hours you can spend booking flights to go to Tenerife and getting frustrated with that, or the hours that you can spend in Marks and Spencers buying a pair of shorts that fits you, which can be <laughs> difficult in some cases. So you spend a lot of time doing all sorts of stuff that's really unimportant and yet forgetting the really important thing, which mm -hmm. is that the Lord is returning, the Day of Judgment is coming. And it seems to me that churches will fall into, churches that claim to be evangelical will fall into, into two groups those that often bring the eternal realities to, um, to the congregation, because that is what the Bible is really all about. And those that don't, those that profess to teach the Bible, but actually are only helping people to live their lives in this world. But the Bible itself is always taking us to eternity. I mean, think of the famous John 3.16, that God loved the world in this way, that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have 
eternal life. It's not just about good life in Ayrshire or Perthshire or Glasgow. It, it's mm. eternal life that the whole thing is about. So it, it's great that a, a passage like the Revelation 2 letter to Smyrna helps us to keep our eyes on, on what is really important and what is going to bring us joy in the end. Yeah, I guess there's so much in the passage about what um, is seen and what is the actual reality. So um, Jesus talks about the fact that, you know, I know your tribulation and your poverty in brackets, but you are rich. Mm. And I suppose we've got to try and train ourselves, don't we, to think, okay, I'm giving this up or I'm sacrificing that, or this is difficult, I'm getting flack from my family. But it doesn't, you know, in the light of eternity, the light of the fact that Christ is on his throne and reigns and is coming back, you know, that's nothing almost. You know, it's not nothing. You don't want to trivialise people's difficulties and trials, but when you see it in the light of the eternal reality and what we have to look forward to, it makes it just so much more sort of, I don't know, we're so much better like able to, to cope with these difficult things. And I think it was helpful, Paul, you were talking about, you know, what if something happened to my family or what if something happened to the church, how would I cope? And it was really helpful to say, you know, God doesn't give us things that are happening in the future, but just what we're going through just now mm-hmm. and having the confidence that, you know, God is going to give us the strength we need today, tomorrow, for the things that we're facing, um, which is really, really helpful. Um, so you talked um, a little bit about, um, well, a lot about death and um, being prepared for death. And I, I think we live in a culture where death really isn't talked about that much. Um, it's something people are afraid of. I, th- I guess, like, in the light of what happened with COVID, people, many people are terrified of dying, Um and imminent death. So what does this passage, you know, help? How does this passage help people prepare for death and as Christians to be bold and living boldly for Christ in the face of that? Yes, well, I think it's the way in which this particular letter begins is helpful. So each of the letters begins with an aspect of the Lord Jesus that's mentioned in chapter one. And the aspect that's mentioned at the start of the letter to Smyrna is about the fact that Jesus is the first and the last who died and came to life. So the, the particular aspect of the Lord Jesus that is in view at the start of this letter is the fact Jesus died and came to life. And, and that's how the letter ends. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So it's bracketed by this perspective of, yes, there is a physical death, but there is, a, there is another death. And he's talking there about Judgment Day and those who will be condemned to hell. That is what he's talking about by the second death. So that is the death to fear, not, our, not the physical death we all face in this world, but actually there is something beyond death. And having that perspective... Uh, just transforms how we think about this world and about our own lives and our own deaths. Um, because as, as Eva was saying, it's, we so quickly become consumed by the immediate and the problems I face today seem insurmountable. We lose perspective. But this particular letter is wanting to remind us what's real. And that's the whole purpose of the book of Revelation. It's pulling back the curtain on the seen world to show us a much bigger reality. And the reality is we belong to a risen saviour and that is the destiny for all who are his. There is hope through death. 
uh, and into eternity. So that's yeah. just the perspective that this particular letter has in, in Revelation 2. Yeah. I think one thing you, you said that really stuck to me, and we actually mentioned it this morning in our growth group, is that like one of the few things that God actually promises us in this life is suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's something that just sort of really, you know, your hackles rise a little bit, even just hearing that, even if you know it's true. Mm. It's just one of those things. You know, Edward, how have you faced suffering in ministry yourself in a way that like is gracious and, you know, God-honouring? Whoa, that's a big question, Katie. I've certainly wept at times because things in, in ministry, especially when you're a senior pastor, things can come at you that, that are really very difficult indeed. But I think it's keeping, keeping the eyes both on Jesus and upon his promises that just helps you through. You see, this letter says, Jesus says to the church, I know your tribulation, that is your present tense tribulation. But then he says a little bit later, uh, you will have tribulation. Do you see in verse um, in verse ten there? You're going to be tested for ten days, and you will have tribulation. So you've got tribulation now, and you will have it in the future. Just as Jesus says at the end of John chapter sixteen, in this world you will have tribulation. So when tribulation comes, um, it is going to be painful, and sometimes exquisitely painful. But I think the thing that keeps you going is the fact that you know that the pattern that Jesus established which is that he died and then was raised, is the pattern for every person who belongs to him. So when he says to his people, follow me, he's not merely talking. He's not only talking about obey my instructions, take my moral teaching to heart and follow it. He's certainly, that is included. But much more than that, he's really saying, follow in the very pattern of my footsteps. My footsteps are that I had to suffer, to die, and then to be raised. And so the sure promise for all Christians is that there will be suffering, particularly suffering on account of our faith. Um, There will be physical death, just as Jesus went through, but equally there's the sure promise of the resurrection. So he says here, be faithful unto death, at the end of verse 10, and I will give you the crown of life. It's a very sure promise. So the pattern of Jesus is something that is going to be repeated in, in our experience. And I think... Just knowing that that pattern of going down into the depths and into death and then being raised up again at the end, to know that that's going to happen will keep us going through through the tough times in pastoral ministry or in Christian life generally. We keep going because we know what the end holds. Uh, And and it's that that keeps us um, alive as Christians and joyful as Christians. So we have to have like a really high and accurate view of what the crown of life is and otherwise you won't be prepared to suffer really yes you know unless you're actually excited and thrilled about the idea of being with the lord in glory we're like this life will just be too difficult and we won't be prepared to sacrifice or and i don't think we have to manufacture a high view of life the more we study the scriptures the more the whole thing comes at us from the Mm. bible this is what it's all about God, this world is temporary, it's transient. And what God is preparing for those who love him is something that that is far beyond our comprehension. Mm -hmm. But the appetite for that and the desire to be with him. What does he say in in John chapter 14? Don't be anxious. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? But I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you will be also. Mm -hmm. So we know that what the Lord wants above everything is that we should be with him. Mm -hmm. 
which is amazing when we think of the fact that we are, by nature, besmirched with much filth, morally yeah. speaking. But he wants, having cleansed us, to, to, which he's done by the blood of the cross, uh, for us to, to live with him forever. So, so we haven't got to sort of, as it were, stir ourselves up and say, no. come on, um, believe in eternal life. Yeah. As we read the Bible, it just comes at us thick and fast, and our appetite for it grows, I think. And it's what we're for. It's what we're being made for, isn't it? It's, it's, it's home, isn't it? That's you know, being with the Lord is like the essence of what it means to be human, isn't it? Yes. So yeah, it just yeah, it's the kind of appetite grows with eating. The more you like know about the Lord and what we're made for, it just yeah, it does help. And I was talking to somebody about Sunday morning um, yesterday, and we were just saying how helpful it is, just the encouragement of being in church and how we were both agreeing that we need this so much mm. every week because mm. actually I, maybe it's just myself I've got a bad memory but you know you forget like these great truths and you know obviously you read your bible during the week as well but you know on a Sunday it's just so much clearer and you're you're really sort of hopefully switched on and focused for that longer period of time and you know meeting together with God's people and it's actually just such a helpful reminder and I think the fact that we're both we're all hearing the same thing and able to talk about it like we're doing now is actually just so helpful because it just reinforces what we're learning and it actually I think it helps it just become even more real than it is because you're sharing that hope and like the joy that you know we're learning about um so Paul you also um, mentioned one of the points um, was talking about the fact that, you know, the Lord knows the slander that's going on. Um, the church are being slandered. Um, and yeah. um, obviously we don't have like Jews slandering us today. But um, in what ways could you see sort of what's like, say, our equivalent now um, mm. of that sort of slander? And how do we handle slander of our church or maybe our leaders um, or people that we would stand with um, as Christians in, in a godly way. Yeah, so I think what was probably particularly painful here about the slander was it was coming from those whom Christians in Smyrna would have possibly least expected it from and in a sense there's a shared heritage with those who profess to be Jews um, and that in a sense there should be an understanding there but actually that they are the source of the slander. Um, and actually, again, Jesus lifts the reality. They say they're Jews, but actually uh, a very strong, a very strong condemnation. He says they're a synagogue of Satan. Um, that, that is the actual source of the opposition. So um, trying to think of sort of parallels today, it's a bit like uh, facing slander from those who would profess to be Christians, those who are in the visible church, and it's them who are lobbing grenades at you because you're a faithful Bible-believing Christian at the church which is holding firm to the Bible's teaching. That, that sort of slander is, in a sense, harder to, to take because you're professing to follow Jesus and it, you're the one throwing stones. You sort of expect from those who are clearly not Christians and who are, you know, they might be proclaimed atheists or you kind of expect opposition from folk who would call themselves that. But for those within the professing church, that's, that's really hard. And it's, it is particularly, um, you know, it, it's particularly from those who maybe from liberal churches and 
as we stand firm on the Bible's teaching about a whole bunch of ethical, moral matters, um, and they are fierce in their opposition because they want Bible-believing churches to tone down their teaching, to abandon the gospel and what the Bible says, and to to join with them in, in what they're promoting. So it's very difficult. Edward, I don't know if you want to come in on that, but you've maybe seen more of that over the years, but it's, it's often from the liberal church where the opposition comes, and that's, that's difficult. Yes, yes, that's right. It, it is difficult. Um, I think one of the big comforts for people uh, like us in our church is to remember, well, the words of Jesus when he said, woe to you when all men speak well of you because that's the way they used to speak of the false prophets. So if everyone says, oh, well done, you're doing jolly well, what a nice Christian person you are, uh, lovely, lovely minister you are, if, if that's the constant chat about you, you're probably in trouble. Um, but it's when people begin to, to lob their hand grenades at you that you begin to think, well, I'm actually on the right ground here. Not least because people were constantly lobbing hand grenades at Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. And when you read his teaching, it's not just sort of gentle teaching, which is given from an armchair uh, in, a, in a library to a group of PhD students who, who are so very happy with, with what you're saying. Most of his teaching is given in the face, in the teeth of Pharisaic opposition who really hated him to the point of wanting to kill him. So he would have to say to them at times, why is it that you want to kill me? And they would say, we don't want to kill you. But he said, you do. And they did, of course, in the end, they did actually kill him. So there he is giving all this teaching and he's finding the pushback that comes at him all the time from, from, from that group of people is very, very powerful. And yet he withstood it. Now, again, he's, he's our example. So we have to follow in, in, that, in that same mold. And when the brickbats come at us, we've just got to take them. And it's a great help that we take them together. You know, a pastor who preaches a sermon and he receives a great deal of pushback. He's got friends, so he can, he can ring them up or his friends ring him up and say, we heard that sermon and we've heard the, the response to it. We're with you, brother. You know, don't worry about it. Um, this, this is part of the price. Mm. So it, it may be that because in Scotland and England for two or three hundred years, more than that, really, the gospel and the Bible has been largely accepted that we, we suddenly find ourselves in this 21st century in a different, a different place um, where the church is becoming very unpopular with some people. It's popular when it does gentle things, when it just slots in with society um, and does things like put on a, a good show for the Queen's funeral or the coronation or something like that. Oh, well done, church, you know, good pageantry. Um, what, what, wasn't the archbishop dressed in a wonderful dress? You know, that, that kind of thing. That's fine. You, you slot in with, with what the world expects and the church is acceptable, but it's got no message there. Whereas as soon as you begin to bring the message that challenges the sinful state of the human being and the need for repentance, then, then, then the brickbats come and we just have to take them. And mm. it's, part of, it's part of the package. That is a, it's difficult to handle, isn't it? When there's folk outside of our church and... They say this about the church, or they say that about the church leaders. That that's very hard when you know otherwise. Uh, they've heard snippets, or they've they've sort of come to conclusions that aren't justified. Mm -hmm. It's it can be very difficult to. You kind of want to go on the defensive and mm -hmm. push back, but 
sometimes you just got to accept it and, you know. Yeah. And there's this great message about not being afraid, isn't there, which you, you mentioned a moment ago, Paul. But here in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. That's mm -hmm. an odd thing, isn't it? If you're about to suffer, naturally you shrink from it, don't you? Mm -hmm. But Jesus says it's going to come, but don't be afraid. And that is, if I could put it like this, God has form in saying throughout the Bible, don't be afraid. Yeah. Because our nature is to be fearful, particularly when we're opposed and when people are mm -hmm. reviling us. So when Paul, the, the apostle, for example, was in Corinth, and the gospel was going forward powerfully, um, he was obviously tempted to shut up shop and to stop speaking. So the Lord Jesus drew close to him in the night, one night with a vision, and said, Paul, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking because I am with you. And there are a lot of people in this city. So when the temptation comes to us to shut our mouths and to stop testifying to the great truth of the gospel, um, that's the moment when the Lord would say to us, don't be afraid, keep at it, keep speaking. Yeah, and Paul, you mentioned 1 Peter, and just that was really helpful because it's, it's just helped us understand that like the, the tax or the slander or um, the suffering that we're going through, it's not for nothing. You know, God is using it um, for his glory. Um, mm. And, you know, how does that shape as well? Um, not just that we have this eternal reality to come, but how God uses it in the here and now. Um, well, you know, you, th you think about um, when you hear about other folk who have gone through suffering of whatever kind. It might be they've had a particularly difficult family situation or an illness or, you know, they, they've, they've faced on a fairly local, small level, but they've, they've had suffering to deal with and they've had opposition because of their faith. And seeing how they handle it and how the Lord enables them to handle it, that encourages so it encourages me and encourages the church. So, you know, not long ago we had one of our youngsters, school people, sharing about struggles uh, that they've been facing in school for the stand they take on sexual ethics. And it was just, it was very encouraging to hear how they were handling that. Mm. So it, it, it can be very strengthening and encouraging for other mm. Christians uh, when they see how we handle suffering, how others handle, handle suffering. Um, and it's a real testimony to the Lord Jesus, isn't it? When you see people who you might write off, you think, you know, they're not especially strong or brave, and yet how they're withstanding extreme pressures, mm. that reminds me that the spirits are working their heart. Yeah. The Lord Jesus is with them. He's strengthening them. If you can do that for them, you can do that for me. And... So I think seeing others endure and what we see with gospel partners around the world and how they, yeah. how they face things. Um, it was very sobering to hear about the men. I, I actually missed the interview, but um, just being aware of, or being more aware of like the persecution for ministers, churches being burnt down, yeah. you know, it, it really helps you put things into perspective. Not that your trials aren't important, but... You know, there's just so many people all around the world, Christian brothers and sisters all around the world, really suffering in much more extreme ways than I am or that we might be. And just, it's inspiring to actually just keep going and be prepared, ask God mm -hmm. to help you be more prepared to suffer mm -hmm. um, for his sake. Yeah. Edward, you'd like to share a little bit about uh, the morning in Leviticus, just in the light of 
um, the fact that we are talking about our salvation and the future that we have in Christ because of Jesus' blood shed for us, then um, yeah, Leviticus was very much just highlighting just how sinful all of humanity are, um, but how Jesus deals with that. Yes, the, the extreme depth of the sinfulness of the human heart. That's what I think was being brought out of the passage from Leviticus on, on Sunday. And that's very sobering and it's very realistic because I guess most of us don't know quite how dark things really are inside us. Uh, but a lot of darkness there and, and the potential for it to come out is, is very great. So when, as we come to realise how deeply sinful we are, we realise what a very, very great thing Christ has done in dealing with that sinfulness. And uh, the point that Stephen made um, about the, the leper uh, in Leviticus and relating it to, to how Jesus dealt with the leper is that the leper was outside the camp. He was beyond the pale. He was untouchable. He had to go around crying out, I'm unclean, so stay away. And that's really a picture of, of ourselves in relation to God, that we are unclean. And yet Jesus himself, the Son of God in person, coming to the leper in Mark chapter 1, does not get infected with leprosy, but the power goes the other way entirely. Jesus is impermeable when it comes to, to leprosy. Um, but he is able, he was able, um, to, to deal with, with the leprosy immediately. So, so the leper is cleansed. A little bit later, Jesus meets the woman who's had a hemorrhage for many years. She is cleansed. And uh, on the same day, he goes to Jairus' daughter, a little girl who's died. And simply with his, little, with his words, little girl, I say to you, arise, she becomes alive again. So the power of Jesus to deal with sickness which represents sin, sickness and moral uncleanness and death itself, that just with a word he is able to cancel all of that and reverse the effects of the judgment and the curse that God has put upon mankind. Uh, that struck me as being a very wonderful thing and it made me want to say Jesus is very wonderful and very powerful. He can do this that nothing else could do. No amount of human religion could wash ourselves clean. We could wash a hundred times in the cleanest water. We wouldn't go to the Clyde, would we? We, we could wash you know, in, in the most beautiful highland stream a hundred times, but we couldn't cleanse ourselves. There's no swore figure for the soul, is there? But Jesus comes to the, to the sinful person and says, you are now saved, cleansed. Your sin has been dealt with and, and salvation is yours. So the power of the gospel, I think that came home to us from Leviticus mm. on Sunday evening. Lovely. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think that's us for today. Um, but, Paul, are you preaching again next week? I am. I'm preaching on Sunday. Um, we'll be looking at another one of the seven letters to the churches. Um, I'm not sure which one yet, because I'm, I'm doing a bit of a overview. I'm not going to do all the seven, but um, that's this afternoon's task to, to get my head into that. But, yes, that's Revelation on Sunday morning. Super. And then maybe Stephen... On Leviticus. Oh, Willie's back on Genesis. Willie's back. Fantastic. That's great. So, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. And, yeah, hopefully you can join us next week. Mm -hmm.